Welcome to the Visegrad Inside podcast from Central Europe on Central Europe. Welcome to this week's podcast. We recorded from two locations, uh, our office in Warsaw and uh, from Transylvania, Turda, uh, close to Cluj-Napoca, uh, from the LSE Ideas uh, Ratio Democracy Forum. Um, my name is Wojciech Przybylski. Miles Maftin is uh, here with me um, on this, on this, in this remote studio. And we're bringing you the, uh, the stories uh, that we believe are defining the region um, uh, this week and the past. Uh, the reason uh, I am abroad is because I've been joining Globsec conference last week, uh, at the sidelines of which uh, I heard a bit of a interesting gossip, uh, happy to share with our listeners now, more to read in our weekly outlook. Uh, uh, seconds uh, from Globsec in Breslava, the uh, probably the biggest security forum currently in Central Europe, uh, I went to a very small and exclusive uh, format that we are partnering up quite often, LSE Ideas Ratio Forum uh, Dialogues on Democracy. And here from Romania, we also have a recording that will appear only in a week, also on a very interesting security, democratic security related um, uh, recording and interview with an investigative journalist um, who is exposing uh, the systemic fraud in the intelligence and security services uh, and defense sector in, in Romania. But now the stories of this week, um, I will, uh, um, I think the biggest news of, of the past week and we will uh, see uh, in, the, in the weeks uh, now to follow how it will play out is the adoption of the plan, the Recover Resilience Plan National Chapter uh, uh, when uh, Ursula von der Leyen actually straight from Klopsek went to Warsaw and signed the plan, agreeing with the Polish government to release funding, release the money, uh, if, uh, if at least uh, the three main points of the long list of 300 conditions uh, are being met, the three points on the rule of law. So, so the government has a little time to implement um, the changes which would release the uh, grip of, uh, of political control over the national um, uh, of the of the Supreme Court um, in Poland, and if that happens, um, some money is expected. There is a lot of criticism among the uh, expert community and think tankers uh, following the rule of law, the, also the the cunning strategies of the illiberal regimes. Uh, stipulating that uh, the, the conditionality in the documents is just not enough. The critics of that position say uh, that uh, who nevertheless still uh, follow the rule of law uh, uh, debate and on the, on the side of, let's say, uh, liberal democracy, not the illiberal side, uh, point out to the, uh, to the limited uh, powers of, of, uh, of this conditionality um, and of course, the uh, existential crisis for uh, for the Polish economy that is already uh, going down with the uh, with the crisis. Uh, no matter that it has performed miraculously well over the past months, um, and, and yet uh, there are voices who point that point out that the uh, Polish uh, Recovery Resilience Fund, which has all the elements uh, of the rule of law conditionality that were. Um, that were raised and, and prepared in the 
in the recent programming period uh, will be also parts of the structural funds that have not yet been released for Poland and are only going to be discussed and negotiated, giving Commission and the European Union institutions again an upper hand in how um, it can influence the, um, the, uh, the, the or, or uh, try to reverse some of the backsliding um, in, in Poland. Um, at the same time, uh, we know that government in Hungary uh, either doesn't care or is unable to make such a progress and uh, the funds for Hungary remain frozen. There is a bit of a uh, frustration perhaps uh, that has been um, directed in various uh, at various directions. In, in Hungary, the, uh, the Speaker of the Parliament uh, called Zelensky an unstable um, politician or you know he recommended health uh, mental health checkups uh, to which Ukrainians uh, responded fiercely and I don't know really what Hungarians were thinking because if you look at the strategic communication the uh, the, the, the not only the government of Ukraine but also all the uh, people involved in in strategic communication of uh, on the Ukrainian side, uh, if you if you compare the potential of Ukraine of what Ukraine can pull out, and that's to attack Ukraine today on on social media on such verbal and meaning meaningless otherwise attacks is is plain stupid. Um, doesn't bring any benefits. So I I'm not really sure what was what was on the Hungarian mindset. Um, Hungary is releasing um, later this month at the end of the month. It is releasing the uh, presidency in the Visegrad group. But uh, while in, in Bratislava, I, I have to admit, I heard nothing of Visegrad. In fact, there were no Polish or Hungarian high-level government representatives, which was uh, highly unusual for the Global Forum, which is co-sponsored by the Visegrad Fund, and usually had hosted um, uh, in the past all the important ministers, uh, uh, from the, especially from the ministries of defense, uh, foreign affairs, prime ministers and presidents of the Visegrad group. But this time, the, uh, neither, neither Hungarian nor Polish uh, representatives uh, would come. Um, you, can trans you can see various reasons for that, uh, but there was a lot of chatter and speculation that it was also because um, they're not being very welcome, which uh, raises, questions, raises questions about how Bratislava is going to handle the Visegrad presidency. And after a yearly presidency, when Czechs uh, take over what will be the state of Visegrad. We have had a, 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 um, uh, an online discussion on the future of V4 with uh, some serious uh, speculations and questions about that. Uh, and, and yet V4 remains so much important and united on so certain sectoral priorities like Eastern Partnership and especially Ukraine. The Visegrad Fund has organized part at, at, at Global uh, Forum in Bratislava Globsec Forum in Bratislava, a special focused uh, panel on the future of, of Ukraine and civil society engagement. And there is a willingness uh, to collaborate on that uh, in, in terms of, uh, of the priorities. Also in, in Czech Republic, uh, EU presidency, we know that the Western Balkans will be 
high up um, next to other um, priorities, for instance, on cybersecurity. Um, and next, of course, the main topic of Ukraine. But somehow you don't see uh, this unity and this this uh, this level of commitment on the on the political level uh, to the Visegrad format anymore. Neither from Polish nor from Hungarian um, side. So, so that is that is going to be um, very much uh, on our agenda now to monitor and to speculate also. Uh, on the possible scenarios that result from that. On the sidelines of Globsec conference, we also learned um, uh, from the Slovak experts, and that actually shows the power of Visegrad is about coordination and sharing intel, that uh, they are uh, they are expecting very much uh, that, that the French uh, are going to uh, accept uh, either a candidate status or propose something of a potential or a future candidate status, which is uh, which is you, you cannot be half pregnant from the Central European position. So we the Central Europeans will definitely push for a full <laughs> full candidate status, not some optional candidate status for Ukraine. But you see that there are elements of coordination, and we have talked about. Uh, uh, presidents of Slovakia, Ms. Chaputova and President Duda, common efforts, a tour um, around Europe also in in an attempt to uh, to, to uh, increase the chances that Ukraine's candidate status is adopted. It's a concerted effort of all the V4, my, perhaps my uh, my understanding is that also minus Hungarian efforts to, to make a bid for Ukraine candidate status. Um, uh, but uh, but that that also demonstrates how important the V4 um, uh, altogether is. Um, the last uh, country we haven't spoken really about here, or I haven't mentioned yet, is is the Czech Republic. Uh, thinking of the um, the upcoming EU presidency, of course we can we can focus on the on the European agenda of Czech Republic, but. The internal news are most disturbing. Uh, in, otherwise, it's about, um, on one hand, uh, planned, uh, planned cuts on the public uh, uh, broadcasting. Um, uh, people will be uh, fired. And uh, political takeover or uh, elements of political control on the, on the council um, of, uh, of the public media to be established. Which, um, which raises eyebrow and in the light also of the research and the conversations we have had with uh, the leaders of the illiberal turn research project at Lauborough University, Václav Stetka and um, Sabina Mihey, we know that Czech Republic has been so far uh, standing up uh, against the takeover of the public, of the media space and polarization in media space. Um, preserving um, uh, uh, quite a, f a free and fair uh, playing field for the electoral game as well. Um, and now we see the, the after last elections, we see elements of, uh, um, of backsliding here as well. Um, and and, uh, and a fact, fun fact also from Czech Republic was something we we definitely put an eye on was was also claimed by President Zeman that uh, Mr. Putin should be judged as a war criminal. And I'm, I'm just speculating here whether this is um, a, a comment that is, again, well thought through and, and strategized or, or just a slip of a tongue from otherwise a very controversial um, president whose proposals in the public space in Czech Republic have often been counterproductive and, 
and we're proposing Putin to be um, to be put on a uh, on a trial. Uh, it might be also read as a as a one other attempt of subverting uh, an honest attempt um, um, of, of 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 raising this topic as a as a valid topic. So um, these are uh, this is a quick review and more to read. Uh, uh, from the weekly outlook on democratic security in Central Europe uh, that is released today, uh, Monday, 6th of June. And now over to, to you, Miles, to, to discuss what else is uh, coming up. I mean, we have quite, quite interesting texts and very timely analysis and then, and then your interview. So help us out to, to navigate uh, through, through the content. Sure, happy to do so. So <clears throat> an interesting piece that came out actually today was by uh, Mideli Ariakas. So she is, of course, our March and Crow fellow, and she's based in Estonia. Um, and it's essentially about Estonia's coalition collapsing, uh, how, you know, the prime minister Kaya Kalas has lost her coalition and might actually soon lose her government. And this is super interesting because from, I would say from a CEE perspective, Kaya Kalas and what Estonia has done and kind of the voice that they've been taking on the international uh, level, you kind of uh, understand that they are someone who, that she is someone who has basically been the leading voice, leading the way. We only hear of successes. We only hear of victories. We only hear of these kinds of things on the international level. But when, uh, you know, Merili actually kind of specifies that she's won victory and after victory abroad, but her party actually lost its coalition partner at home and could kind of lose the government, right? So, there's a lot been happening with Estonia and Merili kind of specifies this, how, you know, on Friday, they, there was a uh, weeks of bickering between coalition parties. And um, there was proposal to the president to even dismiss some members from the, the center party. And I don't want to give too much of it away or anything like this. So please read the piece listeners. It's, it's a great piece. Uh, so that's just something from, from today. Mm, of course, we have a couple of other texts that I wanted to highlight. So Alex Kazarski is going to talk about the, the Slavic Brotherhood as, as a sort of construct. So that's something to, to look forward to later in, in, in the week. And finally, um, kind of linked to the piece that, um, uh, that came out last week from our Future of Ukraine fellow, Christine Karelska. Mm, she actually is doing her second part of the sport diplomacy piece, and this will be specifically um, profiling one uh, or two of those of those stories of those Ukrainian football players who are who are fighting uh, bravely in in the the war. So we'll go ahead and actually listen to that right now. Fantastic, thanks, Miles. And indeed, this is a an honest effort from us to bring in uh, beyond, beyond the war stories of Ukraine. And of course, they are strictly connected also to the ongoing situation. But, um, but it's our, um, uh, our program, uh, Future of Ukraine Fellowship program attempts uh, to, um, to keep Ukraine focused on Ukraine and help also Ukrainian analysts and the democracy advocates, uh, advocates in, in the country to keep on going, building up uh, not only immediate security and, and, and the military victory, but build up democracy um, in this country. So um, uh, tune in now to the interview. Uh, 
I'm here with Christine Karelska. She's a future of Ukraine fellow at Visegrad Insights. Christine and I went back and forth a while in terms of trying to figure out what could be the first article that she does, or in this case, a series of articles that she could kind of write to tell the untold stories of the war. So essentially what's underlining the fellowship itself. She had the great idea of writing about football diplomacy, telling the stories of those Ukrainian female football players who are advocating or even fighting directly to stop the Russian invasion. But there's so much more to the series that we necessarily need to, to underlie here. So, Christine, thank you for joining us. Can you just briefly tell our listeners what the main focus of the series is? So what we're planning to do here, what was kind of your motivation behind telling these stories in the first place? Hello to everyone from Odessa in Ukraine, and thank you for having me. The main focus of this series, Football in the Times of Invasion, is stories of leading Ukrainian female football players. Each week we will present a story that was interrupted by brutal war unleashed by Russia. These interviews will provide our readers with a personal insight into how the war has affected the lives of female football players from Ukraine and women's football in my country in general. These professional players will tell you how they encountered this war, their thoughts, reactions, their opinions on an old adage, football is beyond politics, and on war atrocities happening right now in my country, FIFA, UEFA sanctions imposed on Russia, prospects of the post-war women's football, and much more. My motivation behind telling these stories is quite simple, to show the democratic world the truth about how this invasion has affected the lives of our Ukrainian people. It's information from primary sources, roughly speaking, stories of outstanding Ukrainians. In this case, our female football players. There are people leading athletes of our country with their own dreams and achievements, and all this has been shattered overnight. They were forced to leave the country and play in other teams. Now they're fighting for Ukraine at foreign football stadiums, having turned into powerful football diplomats for peace and democratic values in Ukraine and far beyond it. And I would just like to express my gratitude to them for having answered my questions despite such challenging times and their tight schedule. I want to thank them for everything they are doing right now. And I'm more than sure that each emotional story will not leave anyone indifferent and will make a positive impact on the post-war development of Ukrainian women's football. Okay, before we go on and actually discuss some of the individual stories themselves, let's try to paint a broader picture for our audience. FIFA. It's been plagued with corruption for some time now. Um, there have been many different stories in the news that detail this. And when the invasion occurred, sort of at the end of February, what, what I kind of want to know and, and what you do spell out in, in the series, but for our listeners to understand a little bit more is, what was the actual initial reaction from FIFA? And of course, why is it that they were so slow to actually act? As I have already mentioned, the stories of Ukrainian female football players which have been interrupted by the brutal war will give answers on the role that FIFA plays during these challenging times, along with its ties with Russia during previous conflicts, football sanctions, and the post-war prospects of women's football in Ukraine, and how football diplomacy can contribute to the overall struggle for Ukraine's long-awaited victory. 
and the Rusnov reaction was predictable, it wasn't a big surprise, but of course it caused more outrage from the international community than before. FIFA decisions were taken only due to huge pressure or exerted from the national football associations, namely from the French Football Federation and the Polish Football Association that continued to name and shame FIFA's slow reaction to the invasion. It finally banned Russia from all international competitions and the Court of Arbitration for Sport rejected Russia's appeal to lift it. It took the Champions League final from Russia, it terminated its sponsorship deal with Gazprom, the Russian state-owned energy giant, and one of Putin's geopolitical tools. We all know he loves using it as his leverage. The European football governing body ruled that Russia will not participate in UEFA's Women's Euro 2022. Heavy sanctions were put on Chelsea FC, its owner, Russian oligarch Roman Abramovich, who tried to act as a mediator between the peace delegations of Ukraine and Russia, but he is not Chelsea owner anymore. For the president of FIFA, Johnny Infantino, it was an uphill task to cut his ties with Putin. He offered that Russian teams continue playing under the name of the Football Union of Russia, playing home games on neutral territory and behind closed doors with a Russian flag and anthem band. It sounded rather unfair and ridiculous towards the Ukrainian people who keep fighting against Russian aggression. The clear signal to FIFA was sent by the British PM Boris Johnson, who condemned Infantino's stance on the events in Ukraine, saying there is a clear need for football to continue to present a united front in the light of Russia's abhorrent actions in Ukraine, and sport cannot be used as a platform to legitimize Russian aggression. Fierce objections from the above-mentioned football associations have caused a domino effect, Others supported these brave positions, but if they were silent about excluding Russia from all international competitions, would FIFA have the courage to do it on their own? It's a big question. FIFA was simply cornered and shamed in its attempt, uh, attempts to further appease the Kremlin and order an order of friendship that was given to Infantino by Putin turned into a symbol of hip hypocrisy. And finally, FIFA and UEFA have decided together that all Russian teams, whether national representative teams or club teams, shall be suspended from participation in both FIFA and UEFA competitions until further notice. But this until this phrase, further notice, hints at lifting, mitigating all football sanctions and returning to business as usual as soon as the situation in Ukraine is stabilized. Such an ambiguous position may put Infantinus third-term re-election ambition as FIFA's president in a very delicate position. Let's not also forget who hosted World Cup 2018 before the Russian invasion Russia held it, despite appeals from Ukraine, the international community, to give this right to another country, not the one <clears throat> that's violating human rights and all norms of the international law. I also sent lots of letters to the US congressmen, top EU politicians with appeals to deprive Russia of this right. However, FIFA kept insisting that sport is beyond politics. It has neglected the Russian crimes and to some extent sponsored Russian military might. Those World Cup revenues were spent on Putin's war machine as well, on his missiles, that now fall in our peaceful cities. The background of that grand sports event was Grim illegally detained Ukrainian political prisoners, labor abuses against workers on World Cup stadium construction sites, uh, war atrocities in Syria and so on and so forth. And the most important part of this is the ongoing Ukraine's territorial integrity violation. But FIFA preferred to bite 
its tongue and silence those issues, having appeased Putin's imperialistic goals to showcase the Russian power, improve its image on the international arena and strengthen its geopolitical positions. In times of unjustified war, when one aggressive state abuses all norms of the international law, all human rights in fact commits a genocide against a peaceful nation, such country has no moral right to be represented on the sports international arena. The post-war FIFA reaction is also crucial. Me and the players who are giving their own stance on it, we all agree on crushing football sanctions on Russia. It's also my motivation behind this series as well to show the face of FIFA and hope they will change it for peace and democratic values. They will change their policy. They must learn bitter lessons. The sanctions must remain after the war, of course. It goes without any saying. But will FIFA have the courage to say no to business as usual with the Russian regime? It's a very tough question to answer. When something as devastating as an invasion happens, it's really difficult to focus on something that is the true representation of normality, like sports. But in this case, the repercussions of war, as terrible as they are, they, they often seem not to be discussed in ways just beyond numbers of casualties, troop advancements, and, and so forth. But it's these stories that actually show the real costs of the war. So this is kind of something that was in the back of my mind as I was reading the series in the first place. And given this, I'd, I'd sort of like to ask you, what does this invasion mean, not only for the individual players on the national team, but for Ukrainian football in general? How many years behind will the country now be due to the unlawful and terrible invasion? And of course, what's next for Ukrainian football in general? In upcoming interviews, football players will answer this question more broadly. I'm not open all the cards. Obviously, it's a catastrophe for our football, for our sports infrastructure. I showed in my first article how the stadium Sonishny, Sunny in Kharkiv, was damaged after the arrival of the so-called Russian world. Until the beginning of the war, the stadium was the home arena of the women's football club Zhitlobot 2 and the training base of the national team of Ukraine. In 2020, the final of the Ukrainian Football Cup among women's clubs also took place at this stadium. Other stadiums were damaged by Russian missiles or shelling as well. This unlawful invasion has united our players. Regular charity matches are organized to raise funds for resolving humanitarian issues or support our brave soldiers. Some Ukrainian male-female football players put their t-shirts up for auction. Football clubs across the globe continue to show their solidarity with Ukraine by demonstrating Ukrainian flags, posters with appeals for peace. Most Ukrainian female football players joined the women's battalion team to raise funds for the needs of the Ukrainian army. The legend of Ukrainian football Andriy Shevchenko has become the first ambassador of the brand United 24, an initiative launched by President Zelensky to tell international partners about Russian atrocities and mobilize the world community to support Ukraine more. For instance, today I saw on Instagram that Chelsea FC legend John Terry supported Andriy Shevchenko's initiative Sports for Peace on its mission to raise £2 million for those impacted by the war. Thus, as you can see, the Ukrainian football front is really working hard. Of course, to my profound regret, women's football will not be a top priority. It wasn't a priority before the war, but it developed. 
our female players are really strong and I, as they can compete in all international competitions. They're very gifted and skilled. I think they deserve more. We are now many years behind due to war atrocities, but I really hope that women's football will get huge investments after this war and Ukraine, as you member state very soon, will boast of large stadiums, modern training grounds and lots and lots of trophies. As President Zelensky said, yes, Ukraine was beautiful, but now it will be great. Great Ukraine.